Last week, Rob did a great job of reminding us of the essence of the gospel, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, wants us, God's people, the church, to be confident in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. In fact, his point is that the the resurrection of Christ is the central doctrine that Christianity pivots on. It's the, it's the central doctrine that makes Christianity what it, what it is. And if you remove it, it's like taking the linchpin out and everything else falls apart. Just going to read verses 1 to 4. Now, I would remind you, brothers, and when he says brothers, he means sisters as well, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach you. Unless you believe in vain. Just quickly, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. The gospel has a past, a present, and a future. And the past is simply simply this, that the enemy has been defeated. The present is that now, in Christ, you are a new creation. And the future is that because of this very fact that Rob was telling us, this historical fact of a bodily resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago, you now have a future hope that goes into eternity. And we too, don't we, as followers of Jesus, in fact, whoever we are, whether we follow Jesus or not, we have a past, a present, and a future ourselves. God has broken, for those who are in Christ, God has broken into your life. He has saved you. Your destination is eternal glory. New heaven and earth, heaven come down on earth, is our dwelling place for eternity with God. And today we live in the light of that. Men and women who've encountered the grace of God, the kindness of God, the goodness of God, who have received his spirit, and we now live our lives completely pivoting around this one fact that Jesus Christ has defeated sin and death, and has been raised and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So Paul's point is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is a central axis of the Christian faith. He wants the church to know that. I wonder what your life pivots around. I wonder what the central pivot of your life is. The thing that if, if it was the linchpin, if you like, that it was pulled out, everything else falls down. Maybe it's your family, your marriage. Maybe it's your place of work, your bank account. Maybe it's your friendships or just entertainment. It might be drink, it might be drugs, it might be sex. It could be anything that that our lives can can orientate around. That's the central axis. But Paul's point is the central axis, not just of the gospel, but of all eternity, of all history, is this one event in history when Jesus died and was raised to life. Amen. He goes on to say this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve. This is the central fact. In fact, there's a number of doctrines that we believe that are core to the Christian faith. And 1,700 years ago, a group of guys got together and and clarified, what is it that the church believes? 
And they created this document for us called the Nicene Creed. That's what we call it because um, it was collaborated together in Nicaea. And these guys wrote down these statements, we believe. We believe. These are, these are statements that the church has believed ever since. The body of Christ has believed. That all Christians everywhere have agreed on these truths ever since. And if you take these out of Christianity, then Christianity just collapses. My uncle um, lives not very far from Nicaea, where, these documents, where this document was written. And he said that when he went to visit the area where they believe that this document was um, written, that there's, as you can imagine, a whole load of um, tourist attractions around there to kind of say, hey, this is where the Nicene Creed was written. And he said the thing that he had never really considered, that as he was there reading and finding out, was that this wasn't just an ivory tower. This wasn't academia where these guys got together and and theorized and philosophized and, and took a scripture and just sat for days and days in this pristine room. He said these would have been men who had scars on the back to show their faithfulness to Christ. Men who were under persecution for being faithful to Jesus. And this, this document, the Nicene Creed, is a, is a document that is, testifies of God's faithfulness and the faithfulness of God's people. I just want to read, um, well, the whole thing actually to you. It says this, we believe... I hope you recognize this, if not because you've read it before, at least because we sing this song um, every now and again when Callum and Katie lead. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, Light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. As you recognize, I hope you recognize, yeah, this is what we believe. This is what, these are central truths to us goes on to say, for our sake, he, that's Jesus, was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scripture. And just for a moment, if that's where the Nicene Creed was to finish, that is not good news. That's a tragedy. That's devastating news. That just a moment ago, as Helen was, it was saying, God, in his glory, came down incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us, taking on human flesh and died. Even if he died in our place. If that's where the story ends, that is not good news. It doesn't sound like good news. And Christianity isn't simply good advice or a good way to live. It is, in fact, the good news of what God has done, that he has broken into history that something has happened, the result of which the world is forever a different place. And so the Nicene Creed goes on and it says this, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Don't forget that. We are waiting for the return of our king and his kingdom will have no end. So these are the truths 
on which the world turns. Jesus died, or Jesus died and rose again makes an eternal difference. That, those two different statements, Jesus died or Jesus died and rose again, changes everything. It's, it's of fundamental importance. And the Nicene Creed says this, he died, he was raised, he ascended, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come again, and his kingdom has no end. And this truth in the Nicene Creed comes straight out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul, where we are going to be this morning, and where we were last week, and where we'll be for the next couple of weeks. They've taken this chapter and they've said, here is what we believe. So Christ died and was raised to life. But that is not the end of Paul's argument. As we looked at last week, verse 1 to 11, this is what happened. And in a moment, we'll look at this. Verse 12 to 19, this is why it matters. So, so what that Jesus writes? Why does it matter? And then verse 20 to 28, it's not just what he has done, but what he will do in the future. So if you'd like to jump to chapter 12, verse 12, thank you. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? It seems that in the Corinthian church that there, were, there was ideas that had infiltrated thinking that there was no resurrection from the dead, no bodily resurrection. And if we're going to look in a couple of weeks' time at um, the resurrection body and, and Paul upholding this bodily resurrection, and what are we to expect when we die? I don't know how often you think about that question, but when you die, what is going to happen to you? Well, we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks' time. But there's this controversy around, some people are saying, this, in this letter from Chloe's people to Paul, it's been reported that some people are saying to Paul, there's no bodily resurrection. And so Paul says, it's been reported. How can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? And then he makes this argument. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. No resurrection, then Christ hasn't been raised. Even though Paul's just made the argument for the resurrection of Jesus. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your Faith is also in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. We are most, we are of all people to be most pitied. This is why it matters. This is why the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection, not just a spiritual resurrection, but a bodily resurrection matters. Because if Jesus has arrived, the consequences are this. Pursue him with everything you are and everything you have. If he's dead, well, then let's give up. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 14, Paul says, If he hasn't been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Verse 15, we've been shown to 
be misrepresenting God. We are spreading a false gospel if Christ has not been raised. Verse 17, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is futile. You are still dead in your sin. Without hope. Awaiting rescue. Verse 18, if Christ is not raised, then there is no hope of a future life for you. This is all you get. This is it. And verse 19, if Christ is not raised, then Christians are to be pitied above all people. In verse 19, he says this, if in Christ we have this hope only. He's not just saying we've got this thing called hope that we just hope on. Paul's point is those who are in Christ have placed all of their hope in Christ Jesus. It's like, I'm all in on this one. I've got everything. I am. I've got nothing left. No other other chips just to the side, just in case I'm putting it all in on the fact that Christ died and was raised to life. Bodily resurrection. And Paul says, if Christ is not dead, then you are to be pitied, Christian, above all people. Why? Because you've placed your whole life on him. And he's still dead somewhere. And if Jesus is dead, then run away. Don't bother gathering here on Sunday mornings. Run away and go and find where does salvation sit. It's a, it's a pointless exercise. If Christ is dead so, a few thousand miles away, 2,000 years ago, it's pointless exercise us gathering together, declaring God's goodness and kindness and magnifying Jesus. And a dead Jesus offends no one. Isn't it funny that so many people get offended at Jesus? But a dead Jesus offends no one. Just a random guy did some good things that we have some nice stories of and just some good teachings for how to live life with your neighbors 2,000 years ago. But, verse 20, in the words of Donkey, we like big butts. It would have worked a few years back. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, which is a a metaphor for died. But actually, it's a very apt term also, because when you are in Christ, your body will one day die, but you have already died. You've died with Christ. You are now alive in him. And Paul says, that's why Paul uses that language of those who are in Christ are asleep. They're not dead. But Christ has been raised from the dead. But Christ has been raised from the dead. But even that isn't where the creed ends. If you know that creed, then you know that I missed the end part of it. It goes on to say this, that we, the church, the Catholic church, and by Catholic I mean the worldwide church of Jesus Christ throughout history, We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. We we with the sorry, with the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. The Holy Spirit isn't some impersonal force that just shows up to do a bit of God's tidying up here and there, to sort you out here and there. It's God. The third person of the Trinity. We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our God is a triune God. Three persons in one Godhead. We, we, we believe that, don't we? Good, I'm glad some of us do. It makes all the difference to who God is. 
It makes all the difference to our faith. That's why it's in this document, the Nicene Creed. It's why Paul wants us to get hold of that. With the Father and Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. That's the, the Holy Spirit has. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. What a great document. Christ was crucified, buried under Pontius Pilate, but then raised and ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father from where he rules and reigns. But we look for the return of Jesus and at that point the end will come and we will meet him face to face. And in that instant, we will be changed and we will receive resurrection bodies. Hallelujah. I won't go on to two weeks' time. I'll put a pause right there. But that is significant. For Paul, it is not just that Christ has been raised bodily. As crucial as that doctrine is, as crucial as that truth is, as much as that is the linchpin of everything, it isn't just that Christ has been raised. It isn't just that you have been forgiven sin. As crucial as that is to be adopted into God's family, that isn't where Christianity stops. Christ has been raised. I've received Christ. I'm in Christ. My sin is forgiven. I better rock up to church. It doesn't sound like good news particularly, does it? But also, not just bodily resurrection, but those who are in Christ will also receive bodily resurrection. That's Paul's argument. If, if there's no bodily resurrection, not even Jesus has been raised from the dead. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, then you are still dead in your sins and you have no hope of bodily resurrection. And if you're not raised bodily, excuse that teenage moment, then God hasn't even, Jesus hasn't even been raised from the dead bodily. This is so crucial. Paul's point is simply this, that you need to understand the connection. And you need to grasp the connection between your bodily resurrection and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Your bodily resurrection in the future and the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ in the past. It's crucial that we get that because otherwise we're shortchanging ourselves of our hope and what God has done in Christ Jesus. Our hope isn't, I get to go to church Jesus loves the church. But our hope is that we have an eternal hope, a future with God. That's what I'm, that's what I'm hope, putting all my hope on Jesus for. Isn't just that I get to turn up with you nice people week in, week out, but that I get to be with Jesus for eternity. And the Catholic, I hope I'm not confusing you by saying Catholic, but the, the church of Jesus Christ, all the saints throughout history, new heavens and new earth. If we don't have bodily resurrection, then the part about Jesus being raised to life bodily doesn't actually sound so powerful. So Paul goes on to use two images to show this connection between us and Jesus. Firstly, he talks about first fruits in verse 20 and 23. Verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. This, this language of first fruits, it was 
Back in the day, in agrarian cultures, so we've got to work on this to understand it, but the first fruit was set as, the first fruit of the crop of the harvest was set aside as an offering to God. It would be taken to God. It was commanded in Leviticus that the first fruit set it aside and take it as an offering to the Lord. And so the first fruit was set aside and given to God. But it also guarantees that the rest of the crop is coming. You could tell the quality of the rest of the crop by the quality of the first fruits. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus, the first fruit, guarantees the quality of the rest of the crop that will come. He's holy and righteous. He's loved by the Father. He's treasured by heaven. He has purpose. He's not just disappeared off the scene at Easter 2,000 years ago and one day he'll reappear. Right now he is interceding for you. He's involved in the world, transforming lives. We've just been singing it. You're transforming lives. You're changing hearts. You're bringing life. Jesus is busy at work right now making all things new. Hey, that's true of you. You're loved by the Father. You have purpose. I love the church, but please don't just rock up to church. That isn't what you're saved for. You're saved from sin, but into the purposes of God. Every single one of you, which is why we've just spent some months looking at gifts, because God has gifted us to bless one another and to be his body here on earth. So the first fruits set apart, given to God, guarantees the crop. A useful image here is like thunder and lightning. That's the kind of guarantee of expectation Paul wants the church in Corinth, and he wants you and I to have. Lightning, flash of lightning. You know what's coming. It's why you and I always play the game of counting how long. How long? Lightning always is followed by thunder. We know it. If, if, there was never, if there was a lightning flash and never thunder, we better worry because suddenly creation has changed. Our expectation is when we see lightning that we will hear thunder. And Paul says, I want you to have that kind of expectation of this guarantee. This guarantee that Jesus is coming and will give you bodily resurrection. Wait with certainty, Paul says. Not just sitting out in the pews on a Sunday morning, but wait with certainty with this good news that you've received that Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection has pierced the sky. He has lit up the world. And now we are waiting with certainty for the day that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Paul connects Jesus' resurrection with certainty. The second image that Paul uses quickly is that of being in Christ. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul's point is this. You came to life because of who you are in, not because of what you do. The gospel of grace. Because of who you are in, not because of what you do or have done. Paul's so emphatic on this point that elsewhere he says, even your best efforts are like a filthy rag, which is a very nice translation of a used sanitary towel. To God, our best efforts are like a used sanitary towel. 
They go, God, look what I've done for you. Would you receive me into heaven? He's like, it's not based on what you have done. It is based on who you are in. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The whole human race is in Adam. And therefore it's afflicted with this thing called death because of sin, because of rebellion. The curse is on all of humanity. In fact, the curse is on all of creation. Death has entered the world because of Adam's disobedience. In Adam you die, but in Christ you shall be made alive. This is the hope that we have. Verse 24, let's just quickly jump to that. Then comes the end. When he delivers, that's Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. In the past, Jesus has defeated death. In the future, he will deliver the kingdom to the Father and return in glory. Now, I was just thinking about this, of what is Jesus doing now during the week? And he is making all things new. He is rescuing and transforming. He is, he is empowering his saints to live out his message. You see, Jesus now isn't bodily on earth. He's bodily in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. But his body, the church, is still on earth doing the ministry of Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. And even in that, Jesus is using the church to fight back evil and injustice, to bring peace and light and hope of the gospel. That's why we can't ignore the plight of orphans and widows, whatever that might look like in our culture. It's why we can't ignore the plight of the poor, because Jesus is making all things new. Because Jesus is busy at work fighting those things, putting an end to all of his enemies. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Hallelujah. And then Jesus returns and reigns. He's making all things new. He restores life to all creation and he raises the dead to eternal Life, verse 27, for God has put all things in subjugation under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjugation, it's plain that he expected that he is expected who put all things in subjugation under him. When all things are subject, subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. There is a day, Jesus is busy at work, subduing evil, subduing his enemy. The last enemy is death. And when Jesus has done that, he will bring the kingdom of God to the Father. And along with himself, he will place himself under the Father. Father, here's the kingdom for you. Jesus loves to bring honor and glory to the Father. And Jesus will put himself under the Father. And, we, and we've got to understand the Trinity in this, that there's a, there's a lovely dynamic of flow, of honoring and, and an order in the Trinity where it's not about power, but it's about love that flows between the Trinity. And it demonstrates the value of relationship in the Godhead, that Jesus, after winning the kingdom, would say, Father, for you, that God may be all 
in all. That's not an animist statement, but it's to say that God will be glorified in everything. So we need to think about the crucifixion, Good Friday. We need to think about the resurrection, Easter Sunday. We need to think about Christ's return, but we also need to think about the ascension of Jesus. There will be no, there will be no Christianity if Jesus is not ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling. It's why it's in the Nicene Creed. It's what Paul is wanting the Corinthians to get hold of. Great, Jesus died and was raised. But in light of this, you too will be raised. It's guaranteed. It's a certain thing. But also, there is a day coming when death will be defeated and you will be with Christ forever and ever. Amen. The implication of this gospel that Paul is proclaiming is this. You are not in your sin if you are in Christ. And if you do not know Jesus, the invitation to you this morning is, would you come and encounter his love and his mercy just as you are? You can do that today. You are no longer dead if you are in Christ. You are alive. You are a new creation, no less. And you right now, wait for this, because I don't think we really believe it. You are reigning and ruling with Christ in heavenly places. You've been given authority to bind and to loose. You've been given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I'd love you just to go and think about what that means over lunch. Christ is alive and reigning. Can I just invite you to stand? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave your son even to death on a Roman cross because you so loved the world. And your desire is that none would perish but that all would end up being hidden in Christ. Guaranteed bodily resurrection. And so we bless your name today. We bless your name, King Jesus. We love you. We just agree with all we've been singing and praying this morning that we are so thankful for your salvation. We're so thankful for your sacrifice. We're so thankful that we are now children of God because that is what we are. Because you have made a new and living way for us. And so we come just as we are without pretense, without trying to be perfect, we come broken and humbled that you love us and give us new life. And so we receive your grace again today and we, we, we just welcome you by your spirit and say, would you breathe afresh on us? Heavenly Father, breathe on us by your spirit today. Ignite within us a passion for your glory that we would go from our times together like this, built up and encouraged, certain of our future hope, empowered by the Spirit that we can go and intercede in a broken and dying world with this good news of Christ crucified, Christ raised, Christ ascended, Christ seated, Christ reigning and ruling, Christ returning, Christ bringing bodily resurrection, Christ making all things new. I pray, Father, that you would, you would birth in us a fresh passion for the, those who don't know you in these days. That we would live our lives in such a way that, that honor that story that we've been caught up in. For your glory, we pray this, and for our joy. We bless your name this morning, and we bless one another this week. Amen.